and welcome to another amazing episode of Signs, Cosines, and Tangents. I'm Jared. And I'm Sean. We never really introduce our names. We gotta be a little more open for the newcomers. We have a new audience? Well, I'm just saying we should be welcoming. Well, newcomers, welcome. Jared, what are you doing? What do you mean, what am I doing? Why are you walking away? I'm, over- I'm, I'm grabbing something. Just give me a second here. Okay. We're supposed to be doing a podcast, man. We are? Yeah. Oh. Hold on. Okay. All right. So, welcome to this latest episode. And if you are a new viewer slash listener slash, what did I say viewer? Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But if you're a new listener, we want to make sure that you feel comfortable and at home and this is a safe space for you. Yeah. Hold on. I we, we, We've added a new section to the show. Oh. Um, hold on. See, he does this. and Hey, hey Jared. Yeah. What are, you, what are you doing over there? We're just doing a little housekeeping. Hold on. <laughs> Somebody dropped their Cheerios over here. Yeah, we should probably do that after the show. Oh, okay. Housekeeping, huh? Yeah. Well, this is a section to say things we've mentioned in the past and kind of address all of our faults. This is to early. hold us accountable. Yes. yes. The accountability. The accountability buddies section, if you will. The stuff that Jared has failed to do. Yes, thank you. Great team building, by the way. I try. Single people out. Number one rule of team building. So, um, a couple things I wanted to address. Um, Sean and I have talked. We want to do some live streaming, but not as a show. We're not going to build it up and have things to talk about. Just kind of a casual streaming. So, like our podcast. But we have, we prepare, surprisingly, it may surprise the 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 listener, our uh, tangerinos out there. We we also need a name for our audience. We do. So maybe we pull the audience for that. Yeah. And then we override them with what we want. Exactly. Okay. That's how you do it. You you make them feel like they're part of something. Well, let's hold that for a second. Okay. Because we can tell people how they can get a hold of us and leave their own, you know, ways to get in contact other than those traditional, you know, emails and tweets and well, I was going to leave stuff. that for that section. Yeah. Yeah. So go me. ahead and talk about your housekeeping live streaming. Yeah, yeah. Live streaming. So live streaming. So we're thinking maybe once a week or once every two weeks, we're going to live stream. Sean's going to be at his house. I'll be at my house and we'll just jump in through Skype or something. And Sean will play a game one week that probably will be a little more uh, recent and what other people are playing. And then Jared will play some random Game Boy Advance game. I don't really like that idea. You said you did in the notes. No, that's the Game Boy Advance game thing that you're saying. If you're saying that Jared will play a game Jared likes and Sean will play a game Sean likes and they'll talk over each other while the game talks, I think that's awesome. Uh, Okay, that's what I said. That's not what you said, but that's what you meant. So... Our question to you, the listener, is this something you would enjoy? Or even show up for. Yeah. Because I mean, we can archive all these, put them on a YouTube stream or whatever. Yeah, I mean, we can do it. And again, we do this for fun. We're not looking to, uh, I don't know, increase our wealth. I already have five Dave jobs. Um, <clears throat> but I do want to say, as part of the housekeeping epi- uh section this is already falling apart we need to clean this up you know if we'd only practiced and prepared i know but we do is if you like the show and you think somebody else will pass on our link we're not asking for money here 
We're not asking for uh, just your love and just appreciation. And if you can help spread the word, you think somebody will like it, hey, share the link. It'll make us absolutely zero dollars, so it's awesome. It, yeah, it's great. If it, it, it'll, it'll probably cost us more money to uh, <laughs> we keep to the sp- infrastructure up to yeah. produce the show. Which is the way you always go into a business venture. <laughs> In my experience as a business owner. Yes. So let's so, move on to the tangents, Sean. Tangents, yeah. So we, we've um, had a few interesting things come out since our last podcast. And since we seem to talk about something Spider-Man in every episode. Yes. It's I a, think we're becoming the Spider-Man sub-podcast. It's in our charter. <laughs> Have I seen this charter? <laughs> I, I would think I'd like to see that. Uh, so we got the trailer, the first real kind of footage of Spider-Man Far From Home. And there's some things in it that lead us to questions. Yeah. Like, why is Spider-Man alive? Well, first off, this is the the first film that's going to be after the... uh, Endgame. Well, the dustening, the the (laughs) dustpan. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, After the universe was swept away. Yeah. All the ash. Yeah. So, Um, but... There are some other weirder questions here. I I watched this trailer and it had like just a different vibe in general. A Sony vibe? Mm, I wouldn't say that far. I would say it it was definitely different. It didn't feel MCU-ish. Which makes sense. It's not an MCU film. Yeah, but it is. Okay, so it's not Venom. It's not Venom. But it's not So like... Spider-Man is in Europe on a class trip. Because and that's something it's, that... It's Spider-Man colon euro trip um, road trip spidey yeah and he's fighting a bunch of generic elemental creatures yeah like, like there's a sand elemental and a but water elemental it doesn't look sandman and it doesn't look like hydro, hydro man yeah. um uh, and there's, then, a, there's a fire one too i didn't see an electricity one though no and then this guy comes flying in with a um a fishbowl on his head well he doesn't initially it's jake gyllenhaal um, and he's playing the part of Mysterio, which you can probably recount the character history a little more than I can, but Mysterio, he's a trickster. But you're not going to let me. No, I'll let you. So, yes, Mysterio is an old... Steve Ditko created this character with Stan Lee originally, and the idea was that not all of Spider-Man's villains were, you know, super criminals. This was a guy who was a special effects expert. And he perpetrated crimes by using illusions. And that's why he has the fishbowl head. Because he can project things and there's smoke. His his trademark is this like greenish smoke that he comes and yeah. appears in and to and out of. Illusionist, you know, kind of looking like different people and I mean he trickster. I mean he's Yeah. He's not a brute force sort but of But it's not magic. No. It's always showmanship and technology. Right. He he's like the world's greatest Stage magician. It's always distraction. He's like if David Copperfield became evil and had billions of dollars of technology research. Hold on. Became <laughs> evil? <laughs> I, I don't think some of our more youthful listeners are even going to know who David Copperfield is. Well, who is that? David Cro- Blaine or David Cross uh, or whatever. David Blaine? It's not David Magic? Blaine. It was the guy in Vegas who Darren Cross or. Darren all- Cross is the name of the character from ant-man okay i don't remember (laughs) i don't follow stage magicians they're all liars anyhow so job what wasn't his name job 
I don't know what you're talking about. His family owns a banana stand? Oh, <laughs> I see where you're going now. <laughs> the money is in the banana stand. Um, So we get our first look at Mysterio. We do get to see him with the fishbowl. So it's kind of assumed here that he's creating the elementals and fighting them. Because he comes in as a superhero. He's fighting these guys. And people are well, cheering them you on. You know you're ruining this for people who don't know anything about Mysterio. Because it, the trailer makes it look like he's a hero. Yeah, but... I, and he could be. You're right. He could, he could be. be Spider-Man's new European best friend. And they could do something in the line of Doc Ock and the original Spider-Man trilogy and make him a good guy. I don't know. Now, let's talk about the creepiest part of this trailer. Okay. Aunt May is potentially dating Happy Hogan. Yes. That's, that's creepy. The, that's the MCU tie-in right there. Yeah. there's <laughs> Something seems off there. That is weird. I mean, Milf May is completely different, of course, because it's Marissa Tomei. But I'm still not okay with the fact that the woman playing Aunt May is only a few years older than me. Isn't that weird? You're going to get to an age where Aunt May is going to be the age of you, Sean. Well, we're rapidly approaching that. <laughs> if they if they reboot Spider-Man one more time, Aunt May's going to be in her 30s. <laughs> That's true. So, Spider-Man will be a, a middle Now, schooler. to be fair, Marissa Tomei is a beautiful actress in her 50s. Yes. And so she's still old enough to be the elderly aunt of the 60s. Elderly can she was say, always meant to be elderly. I know, but uh, can you consider people in their 50s elderly? In the 60s, you could. <laughs> Maybe. No, even that was a stretch back then. They would have been in the 70s. But yeah, it's... She's still hot Aunt May. Yeah. Well, let's move on. I, 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 I'm, curious I, I'm having trouble moving on from hot Aunt May. I, I'm curious to see if what people think about the trailer. Um, again, it feels like a different vibe. It's her first film after the whole Thanos... I mean, it's, it's the end of what we've seen in MCU. Yeah. This is going to set the stage for MCU 2.0. And so we'll see. Next thing on the list, and Sean probably doesn't care category, um, the Star Wars game that uh, was in development by... Visceral. Visceral Studios. Yeah, canceled. Canceled. Yeah. Classic can't EA. produce a single good Star Wars game. The only and they thing bought the seen, license for 10 years. I know, and the only thing we've seen is Battlefront 1 and 2, right? Yeah, like I said, not a single good Star no, Wars I, game. I agree with that statement 100%. Um, I would like to see a, sp- a Star Wars game that's not an FPS. I'm just saying. I think there's a mobile game with lightsabers coming. Great. And microtransactions. So, Why? somebody... Somebody commented, like, if it wasn't good, we're not seeing it. But it's visceral, so at the same time, I don't know. Yeah, Amy Hennig is going to go do something else now. Yes. Because didn't they also shutter Visceral Studios after this? Yeah, Visceral's done. Great. EA's added another one to their list. But Microsoft bought In Exile and Obsidian... Maybe Microsoft is going to become the savior of independent game development. I wouldn't go that far, but I think with what they did at last year's E3, I think we... Microsoft's weird because they've owned a few studios. They owned Ensemble, which Mm -hmm. uh, we'll reference later, but um, they haven't owned too many studios, but the studios they have have kind of gone away. Uh, We had Bungie, Bungie, Mm -hmm. which kind of left them. 
Uh, Rare, which is a former shell of itself. Okay. Um, Lion's Head? Lion's Head, that's... uh, Fable. He's gone. Yeah. So any of the studios that they've owned, they've kind of moved on. I think the only ones that have stuck with them were Playground, which they just acquired, um, and the studio that does the Forza games. And the studio that does the Halo, Halo 343, games. 343, but 343, 343 Studios was built to be the Halo studio. Right, when it spun out of Bungie. Yeah, and not many people from Bungie came over. Who we Did, did we talk about the Bungie thing? We didn't. Okay, so this is a good time for that. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, in other video game studios, Bungie has mm, left amicably... Amicably parted with with Activision. Activision. um, And retaining the Destiny IP. Um, They're going to self-publish the game and continue to develop it. So, what do you think of that, Sean? I think that's awesome. Uh, I don't think it means that the microtransactions that everybody's been complaining about inside of Destiny are going to go away. Because now more than ever, they're going to need a funding source. Correct. But I'm hoping it gives us a chance to see what Bungie can actually do without publisher pressure. And dates and timelines and all that stuff. Well, and the whole story of Bungie, as much as I love what they've done with Destiny overall in the setting, I hate having to go to a webpage to look it up. Correct. And that's largely because they never had the time to implement that in the game. Yeah. Um, and it's meant to be a 10-year franchise, and we're in year, like, four and a half, five? I, I think, think easily five at this point. Yeah. And Destiny 2, you know, what did you think of Destiny 2, Jared? Let's move on. Uh-huh. So, I haven't played Destiny 2 yet, but um, I'm happy to see Bungie kind of be their own thing. Um, I hope they can, like you said have funding to stay a thing but um, the count well the studio that's associated with activision that's not going to get to go into its own thing at this point is blizzard right because blizzard merged with activision right it's a little hairier to to separate a company that's merged um because they're one and there's still a lot of hate and discontent in the diablo community after the diablo reveal i i think blizzard in general and I, we've seen a lot of key staff from blizzard leave in the past few years and it seems like all they're doing is retreading old games yeah you know we're getting outside of overwatch right we did get overwatch but overwatch Overwatch is fading it is i mean as scary as it is to say this fortnite is far more impactful than overwatch right now indeed and that wasn't the case a year and a half ago no Overwatch was the the bell of the ball and everybody was excited about it but i think we've hit this level of bleh with Overwatch, and it just kind of sits there. Yeah. But, uh, well, you guys let us know what you think. Uh, we're going to move on. Sean, mm-hmm. this is video game history at this point, but Rocket League has become fully cross platform compatible. So I can play car soccer anywhere? You can play car soccer anywhere on any platform with anybody. So I can play on PC? Android and PC? It's not on Android. On the platforms, it exists. <laughs> PS4, Xbox One, Nintendo Switch, and PC. PS4, what? Come on. Yeah, really? Sony finally gave in. It's in their beta cross platform play. But... And, and what was the reason that Sony gave for acquiescing? Is it like they needed to do a State of the Union address so they allowed it to happen? Yeah. Oh, in a way. 
let's we're not going into the political stuff. um, No, I think I think fan pressure finally came through on this one, and I think it's this is definitely unprecedented. I mean, maybe not completely. There's been cross-platform games like I think weren't the Final Fantasy MMOs. Some of them are class or cross-platform on certain platforms, right? But this is across the all four. Yep. It means if you jump on and you enable crossplay, you could be playing with somebody on any other console. Um, you can set up private parties now where anybody can play. Mm-hmm. And they're adding uh, later this year or earlier, hopefully sooner than later, their compatible friends list. So if you're playing on your PC and I'm playing on my Switch, obviously. I don't own it on the PC. I can see Sean's playing and we can create a party without having to. I own to it on the PS4 and the Switch. Discord. Yeah, and you're not going to play it. But anyhow, <laughs> I'm excited. I want our listeners to know I want to set up a, a play date, if you will, um, now that we can do this. Wait, wait, hold on. What? We have played Rocket League together. Yeah. So what do you mean I'm not going to play it? You're not going to play it. I'm not going to seek it out, but I might do it as a social thing. Okay, so if I can get it coordinated, you'll play? Yeah. Okay, you heard him, folks. And we'll bring Connor along so he can run into everybody. Connor is the most wonderful goalie in the world. <laughs> and he plays like a 15-year-old boy who just doesn't think he has hit anything to lose. I must hit the ball, regardless of the direction it's going. And even if he can't hit the ball, he hits the cars. <laughs> Get out of the way, that's mine! <laughs> uh, moving on. Mortal Kombat 11. Yeah. How in the world... Are there 11 Mortal Kombat games? And where do they go from here? I mean, how how much further can they go? I don't know, but they've... Uh, uh, who does Mortal Kombat in Injustice? Uh, NetherRealm. Yeah, NetherRealm Studios. This is another... They're, they're iterative. If you look between Mortal Kombat 9, which was the 360, it's when, kind of the resurgence mm-hmm. of them. And you look at the Injustice is the uh, off game, and then Mortal Kombat 10, and well, then Injustice And then Mortal 2. Kombat versus DC. That was before. Was it before 9? It, it was. Okay, I, I get confused where they were. Yeah. Um, we've seen sort of an iterative process. I mean, Mortal Kombat 9 was Mortal Kombat in the New Age. We saw Injustice, mm-hmm. which, again, in terms of fighting games, we saw some new mechanics and simplifications. Mortal, Mortal Kombat X, we saw... You can play as Sub-Zero, but you can play as three different versions of Sub-Zero. Right. Um, Injustice 2 introduced oh, I love the Injustice. I love both of them, actually. Armor sets. I'm not a huge fan of the loot box mechanic, but... Yeah. Well, this one's going to have some of that because they're 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 continuing the, uh, you know, multiple versions of the characters. But through the armor or whatever iteration it's going to be in Mortal Kombat 11, you can choose to be classic Sub-Zero or new cl- Sub-Zero. And, but or, you can change your and modify your statistics. So... Yeah. And that's something, if you didn't play Injustice 2, it is effectively a fighting role-playing game. Yeah. And you're collecting... It's Diablo the fighting role-playing game. Yeah, and I think it's something we haven't seen in that space, and I think they executed it fairly well. I, I agree. Um, so I'm excited for Mortal Kombat 11. I have a question for you. Do you find Mortal Kombat, the games, too violent? Too violent? No. 
It's usually so far overdone it turns back around and it almost becomes ridiculous. And that's that's what I'm thinking. I know I saw some people that were like, "Okay, this Mortal Kombat setting me off." Like I can't I can't after 9 and 10, I mean, have they never seen Sniper Elite 4? I don't know, but like it's so comedic to me. Yeah. It's so unrealistic that I don't I don't get any sort of well, I'm guessing the Sniper Elite reference may be a little weird for some of our listeners, but if you go out there and listen to the Sniper Elite stuff, and where we talk about violence that actually looks and feels like violence, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've seen it? Okay. So it is a shooting game on the PCs, and I think there may be console version, but I'm, I know for sure it's on the PCs, where you, are, as a sniper, can shoot a target, and it will go into an X-ray view when the bullet... Penetrates, penetrates the target skull or something and you'll see the skull crack and the bullet go through the brain matter and then come out the other side yeah that's a little that's violent that's a that, little much that would be too much for a lot of people yeah i don't think the violence we get in mortal kombat 11 is going to be that it's it's comedic like, it i've seen the stuff from the e3 trailers yeah. and the game show plus don't forget these horrific things happen and then they, they somebody breaks somebody's spine they fall over and stand right back up yeah. So there's some level of disconnect. And now. there's no sex, so it's perfectly okay. <laughs> exactly. In America, that's fine. Uh, um, let's move this over to you, Sean. You added this one. Young Justice. Oh, Young Justice. I can't praise this series enough. After coming off the disaster that was the Titans. Titans, sorry. Whatever that show was. it. Uh, which... Uh, the The... Reviewers seem to be loving and telling, saying that everybody loved Titans. And I'm like, no, go what, away. What show are they watching? <laughs> That's what I'm wondering. And we haven't really talked about how that all wrapped up. And I'm not going to because we have Young Justice to talk about. And if you want to talk about one of the best superhero storytelling shows ever made, follow Young Justice from first season all the way to the third. And now we're into Outsiders, and this is a world that, if you're a fan, you've lived with these characters, and they've all grown up. That's one of the things that's remarkable about this show, is that it's represented this passage of time for these heroes. So if you watched the first Young Justice back in 2006, that was the, I think that's when the first season came out, and it was on Cartoon Network, and... Robin and Kid Flash and Speedy and Aqualad were all teens. And in the case of Robin, and this is Dick Grayson, he's like 13. Season 2 moved the time ahead a bit, did the invasion, and you have Robin as basically an older Robin. He's almost 18 at that point, and they deal with that. And then at the end of that season, they've moved ahead another two years and Robin is now Nightwing and he's not, you know, Dick Grayson is Nightwing. Right. And you've got Superboy and Miss Martian living together in their house because they're young adults and they're engaged. And, and so it's like the story has grown up with the people that watched it. And we've got another season where there's a, and it's connected to apocalypse, which they set up in the last season, but the metahuman trafficking is the big thing. And so it's a little bit on the nose for some of the political issues going on in the world today. Um, but it's interesting because The Outsiders itself is a comic book that came out in the 80s. Uh, and it was a Batman sub-team. You know, these younger heroes that he kind of did. Think of it as a black ops team. Okay. 
And it started with the introduction of a character by the name of Geoforce, who is a prince of a made-up, you know, like, there's those all these made-up Bialia and all that stuff. Well, this one is Markovia, which is, ironically, this is the brother to the classic Teen Titan, Terra. Oh, okay. And so he was the kind of linchpin on this and introduced a bunch of new characters in the 80s, including Black Lightning being one of the main members of the team. And this is not the Black Lightning that we're seeing on the CW right now, right? Where he's an older, he's a high school principal, he's got two teenage slash young adult daughters. This is much earlier in his career. And they're going out and trying to basically do Black Ops. And Nightwing is leading them with Artemis. And um, the focus is completely off the traditional Justice League teams. So a lot of the characters that were featured last season are in the first episode, but they're not really in it. Like Blue Beetle is not a factor. And, you know, all of the kind of next generation of heroes promoted into the Justice League. But the Batman family all said, you know what, we're done. And they quit. And this is the season about what they're actually doing. Because you're supposed to think that Batman and his team went off and did their own thing and or they weren't going to be associated with the Justice League anymore. Well, it turns out that because Lex Luthor is the um, Secretary General of the UN in this timeline, and the Light is still around, which is the group of supervillains led by Vandal Savage, uh, it just it, it's it's such good storytelling, and there hasn't been a bad episode of this series that I can recall. So, how many episodes are are they into it now? So, season three is getting, going on break as of this week. Okay. So there are thirteen episodes available in season three, and there are thirteen left. Okay, so they've done the first half. So they're doing a twenty-six. It is a full twenty-six season. episode season. So is this enough to subscribe to DC Universe? Yes. Okay. Hands down. If you're a fan of these characters, DC characters, I should say, not these characters. Right. Um, and this is a, this is not your traditional DC universe. If you're a fan of Young Justice, you know it's a little bit different. I believe it's Earth-19 is actually where it takes place. So it's not the Tim-verse. It's not the Tim-verse. It's not the New 52. It's not the, like the movies, the animated movies are New 52 universe, you know, right? Or a version of it. This is completely standalone. And we see the introduction in the last four episodes of some classic heroes we would have expected to see by now, like they just introduced Cyborg. And it is Vic Stone, and it's a different version of his origin that plays perfectly into some of the mythology that's set up in the previous seasons of uh, Young Justice. Because the Apocalypse connection's been there since the beginning, right? Sphere is a mother box. And they talk about all of the apocalyptian um, technology and the parademons. And we haven't seen Darkseid, but G. Gordon Godfrey has been in since the beginning of the series. And now we've got Granny Good running around. I'm waiting for Desaad and Calabac to show up before we get to Darkseid proper. Right. So, again, I'm geeking out on my DC stuff. No, no, no. It's good. It sounds good. It's really it's, it good. It sounds like worth watching with that uh, DC Universe subscription that you get. The to other me. thing, just to pivot a little bit about the value of the DC Universe app, they finally started loading fairly modern comics on it, too. So there's a bunch of the Rebirth stories from two years ago when they relaunched the DC Universe that are now available. 
Um, I still have a problem with the fact that it's not the entire catalog, and it's a very small curated list. And they tend to do it by storyline, but they're not persistent. So they'll they'll do like one storyline for two or three weeks, and if you don't read all of them, you know you're left wanting to read more. You're gonna have to wait and hope that the next storyline was good. So are they are they doing anything like Netflix? Are they taking off storylines? They're they taking only, them off so that it's kind of read them while you can and then move on to the next. Thing. Well, and you know, I guess I should backtrack on that because I think if you're going through a web browser. If you're going through like Chrome or or you know Edge or something like that, no. First off, I gotta nobody. I gotta uses. stop you right there. <laughs> Nobody's using Microsoft Edge. People who don't know better, Firefox. Uh, you can log into the website with your credentials, and you can access a much broader library of books than you can through like the Roku app or the Apple Store app. Those are really tightly curated. And they only see the ones that are featured or by storylines in those apps. And, and so I think that there's a little bit of a disconnect that leads to feeling like there's less on there than there should be. The other thing, and you and I talked a little bit about this previously, reading a comic book online through those apps is a little bit awkward. And, and I wish they had a way to address that. Yeah. But, uh, well, and DC has worked with getting in line with uh, Comixology. That's my app. Yeah, that's another thing we should talk about. Um, so uh, Comixo- Comixology Unlimited is Comixology's subscription service, which I trialed for a few months. And it was largely um, indies and small press stuff. It was definitely indie focused, um, but the, DC is now part of that. Uh, I think it's the same thing. They don't have all the storylines on there, and I haven't actually looked. Right. But, you know, I think they're seeing value in that subscription model. Um, And to me, it almost seems like a defeat or a temporary defeat of DC Universe for their comics. It is very confusing, right? Maybe they're recognizing there's a split. Marvel has their own app and subscription service. And for the most part, um, unlike DC... It's pretty much every comic up until a year or two years ago, for the right. most part. Yeah, they're back like catalog. Pretty, it's a really large back catalog. And they will do newer storylines if they're promoting a movie. Okay. Right? So, like Civil War Two, there were some of those released not quite in that envelope when the Civil War movie came out. Right. Which is funny because it's completely unrelated. It but... is. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, also in comics news, you have a new comic that you're enjoying. Yes, and and this is Jared's fault, by the way. I just want to point this out, because I had not read The Wicked and the Divine until we had a conversation about it. Because I do, I do read comics. I don't read a lot of superhero comics as much, but I do read a little more indie side. And Wicked and the Divine is kind of... It's weird. Well, it's a great series... And it, it's the breakout of fame and godhood and mythology and history. And it's just kind of fun. Um, but it's got some pretty deep ideas in it. And it's it's deceptively deep. Uh, but it's written by a, a gentleman by the name of Kieran Gillen, who is a pretty prolific comic book writer. That's because he's done stuff for Marvel, right? He's done mainstream stuff. Runaways is one of the yeah. things that he's uh, known for. Um, so he's wrapping up the wicked and the divine. They're, they're in their last arc. It has a finite five year story and they're finishing it. Now it's taken them like nine and a half years to get there because 
people get busy and comics get delayed and all that. Um, which is fine. For a good story, I'm willing to wait. Yeah. But he just kicked off a new series. Uh, again, this is an image, so it's, an, it's not smaller press, I guess, anymore, but kind of an indie-focused. It's not a superhero book. And it's called Die, D-I-E. And this is retreading a concept that is not exactly original. It's a bunch of kids get together in the 80s to play Dungeons and Dragons. And I think they're capitalizing a bit on the resurgence and popularity of D&D right now. And maybe a little bit of Stranger Things. And the Stranger Things element, too. Uh, because these kids, basically, they all get... The game... Or not the game. The, the comic starts a little bit in media res. So you see the beginning in the first issue where they get together to play the game with their friend. These are awkward kids. They're diverse, which I think is a little weird for the time. Having grown up in the 80s. There was no diversity in the 80s. There was no diversity until there was a mandate for such a thing. You know, it's not like we hung out with... No, Okay, I'm joking. I just <laughs> want to be very, very clear about that. Um, but uh, these kids disappear for a year. Like, literally disappear from the basement when they're playing D&D. And, and then all of suddenly they show up on this road in front of these cars. And they look like they have been starved and abused and beaten and one of them is missing their arm and and that's kind of all they show you at the beginning of the comic is that the kids disappeared something happened and now it skips forward to the modern day and they're, and they're in their, adults they're adults in their mid-30s and 40s and they everybody's like talks about this horrible thing that happened in their past but they've all grown on they got families they have kids they have professions and then something Every year they get together because one of them didn't come back. And they get together and they, they I don't know, do you call it a celebration? But they just, they get together. But the one thing is everybody asks them what happened and they, none of them can tell anybody what happened. Now, if you're a D&D fan, you probably know why that is. In D&D, there's a spell called a Gaius, which is a compulsion that limits you from being able to do something. So there's a geas on them that, that prevents them from talking about what happened. But you don't know why, and you don't know how it got there. And so they all get together, and one of the older members, the one you could presume was the leader, um, opens this box, and inside of it is this D20 that, they, that you see earlier in the comic that the Dungeon Master has, who was a kid there. He's the one who didn't come back. The oh, Dungeon okay. Master didn't come back. And so they all get together and they talk about the, the Dungeon Master not being back. They open the box. There's this bloody D20. And that's where the story kind of starts. And they find themselves back in the fantasy realm where they had inhabited these characters. And that's the story. Interesting. So you're going to uncover. The name Die now has a, several different connotations. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so when they go back into the fantasy world, they have they resume their fantasy personas. Interesting. And they find the world that they left. It, so it's a bit of the magicians. It's a bit of Narnia. Yeah. Uh, Heroes of the Flames. If you've ever read those books, those are pretty old now. Um, but this idea. Uh, what's the the books I read when I was a kid? Uh, Indian in the cupboard. Indian. In the, yeah. I mean, it's so it takes all of these elements, but it's a very super serious kind of mature they're not dealing 
and they talk about it in the second issue, and that's all that's out so far. There's two issues out. So it's early enough that if you're interested in this concept... You could jump on right now. It's, it should be fairly easy to get on board. Um, and there's still a lot to discover. But they go back to this fantasy world, and it's not a traditional D&D world. So we're, we're not going to be able to make a lot of assumptions as readers about what's going on. And the classes they introduce are just slightly different from your traditional D&D. Like, there's one character who plays a, a Sorrow Knight which is kind of like a paladin whose powers are activated through their emotional state. Okay. And because he's sorrow, he has to be unhappy for his powers for to his powers to manifest. Okay. Right. And so there's a little bit of a conversation around the mechanics of the characters. Um, but this is going to be interesting. I know you've, you've definitely changed me on this. I'm glad you waited to introduce this, this on the podcast. Cause I am definitely going to check us out. So, if you are interested in picking up something, it's not it's not a superhero comic. It's a little bit Stranger Things. It's a little bit It, right? With the story of the characters from It is very similar in some ways. Um, but they're dealing with very... What would it be like if you were a kid who created a fantasy world, went into that fantasy world, like the Dungeons & Dragons TV show, right? Imagine those kids. They get back. They can't talk about what happened there with v- V'ger or Vengers and the, and the Dungeon Master and all and Tiamat, but twenty years later, they get pulled back into it and they have to deal with the repercussions of the things they did. Their when they quest were there. when they were there. Yeah. Interesting. Great. Thanks, Sean. So I, I'm really no. Enjoying I'm de- it. I'm definitely going to check that out. Um, I want to introduce a little new mini section uh, called Jared's Video Game Music Corner. Uh, because I listen to a lot of video game music. Do 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 do. Thank you. We need some intro music for we this. Should. But uh, there's been a lot of there's a lot of covers out there. I mean, the video game music is is I like it. It's great to to do anything to. You don't have to focus on it. You kind of play it whenever when you're working. Uh, so there's... I used to frequent VG Remix all the time. Oh, absolutely. OC Remix or OC Remix. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's three albums that were announced. Uh, Squaresoft has announced a chill-out album, The World is Square, um, <laughs> which is, is a bunch of Final Fantasy music that they've chillized. I don't Ooh. know. How to... Okay, I'm sold on that one. Yeah, uh, you know, kind of just, uh, there's a new... I mean, also... Uematsu is a jazz musician anyways. Yeah. So doing some slow jazz takes on, like, One Wing Angel, I... yeah. that could be cool. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a new genre emerging genre on like the uh the Bandcamp soundcloud side of things called lo-fi where they mm-hmm. kind of take those those songs and run them under a bunch of filters to sound like they're running on a vinyl or something so nice i anticipate some of that um celeste uh amazing soundtrack yep uh there's going to be a piano collection that looks like was released yesterday um so worth checking out there and then uh, also, I found this was was fun, and this is on Apple Music. Video game music or video game menu music gets its own tribute album. So this is a bunch of remix artists that have come together, and it's an album specifically about video game menu music. So, oh, those sound like fun things to check out. Yeah, and I have all the links in the show notes, so go check them out. So, Jared, aside from waxing poetic about video game music. What have you been doing this week? Uh, this week, I was actually pretty productive um, with the, um, uh, what, how do I want to phrase it? The immense 
snowpocalypse that we were forecast to see last weekend. Yes. Um, you know, eight to twelve inches of snow, three, forty-five mile per hour winds, fifteen. Yeah. So I was like, "Hey, I'm going to stay indoors. I'm going to bundle up. I'm going to get some whiskey, and I'm going to do something that's been on my to-do list for years." Well, and I've done it on and off catalog all these games that are sitting around us right now because sometimes I don't know what I've got. I have a pretty good idea. You have been known to rebuy games because you I, forgot you had them. Less than five times, but I have done that. Um, no, it's just for me to catalog these because I, I I care about them. I want to get them insured at some point. Um, I see it as a collection. It's a highly curated collection. I'm not one of those people that's going to get every NES game. You're never getting track and field anyways. Yeah, nor do I want it. Um, <laughs> but so went through, got the old Excel out. I have a program that um, kind of helps the catalog, but you can import from Excel. And me and Daphne went through line by line and just went through this one. Wow. This one sounds really entertaining, but it was fun. No, I, I mean, you, you're married to a librarian. Yes. Jared. Yes. So if you didn't have some of those tendencies, I would question it yeah right now i'm at 814 games cataloged and i anticipate that's around 40 to 50 percent of what i've got wow so yeah i think you may have a problem yeah yeah so when you talk about your steam library i'm like that's cute (laughs) (laughs) but um no it's it's been great uh here's a little a couple little factoids the DS and 3DS are my largest catalogs. I have about 80-some DS games and about 90-some 3DS games. Um, I think next on that margin is Wii, but uh, still need to get through Switch and PS4, and I don't know. So Yeah, and you've got a lot of PS3, PS4, yeah. 360, and Xbox One stuff. Yeah. I haven't and you through- don't even play the Xbox One. I do. I played the uh, the the uh, the car games. The, um, you, oh, Gran Turismo, Horizon, yeah. Horizon, Forza. Yeah, Forza Horizon. Okay. So, uh, Sean, I, I've heard that you have a new vision. Uh, yes, and and AKA I'm a something that is hurting your wallet. Hurting my well, it actually, didn't hurt my wallet that much. No, no. I mean, total. Uh, let me tell you what I'm talking about before I tell you the <laughs> cash. Uh, so. I've been running a two monitor setup on my PC for a while and I use my PC at home both for work and for gaming. So it's a fairly new, not highest end, right? Desktop gaming PC. And I've been running two 27 inch monitors on it. I'm like, you know, I want to try this wraparound kind of three screen because two screen wraparound gaming doesn't really work. Do you know why? You stare in the middle (laughs) at that line. Yeah. There's a bezel in the middle. Uh, So, and, and I've got these three Asus monitors, and they're old generation. They're not like brand new. They're not four or five hundred dollar gaming monitors. They they ran about one hundred and seventy dollars, but they're one millisecond, and they're fourteen forty fourteen forty by ten eighty. Um, so they're not bad monitors. Um, but when you do NVIDIA wraparound, because I have a ten sixty video card, which has like four Display Ports a DVI and an HDMI and you can output to all of them at the same time. I'm not doing that because that's insane. And who has that many monitors, by the way, I've now realized I don't have enough field of vision 
to use the monitors where they're set up right now because they're too close to my face and I actually can't see the periphery on either side if I'm working. So I have to get a new desk now. You have to. Well, it's mandated by the mon- the monitors demand it. <laughs> and uh, the other thing I have to get is a monitor arm because all three of these monitors are the same monitor. And you want to make sure they're even and Invasa mounted. And right now they're flat. So I'm looking down yeah, and it's just, it's painful. But, oh, my God, it's running some games in three-monitor mode. And there are some websites out there that will help you identify what games are compatible with surround. But I, like, ran ESO in three-monitor mode. And it's weird because you get this fisheye effect because it doesn't really know how to extend. Well, obviously, you can't just expand your view. You, you're, if you're in a sphere of view... Right. There has to be some distortion on the edges. And there is. It's yeah. weird. But, uh, yeah. So so what's been your favorite game that you've run in it so far? <sighs> Destiny 2. Okay. Actually. And does it support it natively? It does. Like I said, the field of view has to be adjusted. The other one is No Man's Sky. Those oh, are the man, two. No Man's Sky. And I'm so close. It's like being living in the No Man's Sky And do you have surround sound for your rig, too? I do. So you kind of get a I can more immersed. I, I've disconnected the rear speakers just because I rarely use them because of the yeah. shape of my room. But yeah, it's it's different. And then when we talk about work functionality, if I ever had time to work from home, which I'm not doing as much as I wanted to be, then I would have the ultimate workspace. All that all that screen real estate so to drop new icons. Spread, so many spreadsheets. I could have I could have Discord up in one, Slack in another, or Discord and Slack in one, and Twitch running in one, and Netflix and and Excel and Word. Yeah, it's cool. Cool. And all in all, I've only spent two hundred and sixty five dollars. That's not bad for three monitors. No, it's not. You just got to be smart and shop. That's usually with with peripherals. Uh, even video cards, if you're if you're willing to not to have the latest and greatest, you can get some good. Well, games. now that the the crypto crypto coin mining phrase it's kind is of coming down, dead, yeah. you can get a reasonable video card too. Yeah, I'll think about that when I look for my next video gaming PC. By the way, you'll notice that our tangents are going a little bit longer than normal this week. I think uh, we don't have a huge main topic, but there's one thing we want to hit before we dive into it. Yeah, so. I hear that Jared and I are both big fans of that space chick bounty hunter lady. Oh, Metroid. She's not Metroid. Metroid is an animal. No, she she crawls. Metroid. She turns into a ball, which we still don't understand, but that's a whole other thing. No, so the Metroid series. Metroid Prime 4, we've talked about it before multiple times. Uh, We're both really excited to hopefully see it this year on the Switch. Nintendo has been very cagey up to this point about where it was coming from and who was making it and when it would be here. And now we have a bit more information about why. Yeah, Nintendo, uh, I don't think they've done this for a game ever outside of a direct. Um, They announced that Metroid Prime 4 is restarting development because the development on the game did not meet their quality standards. And that Retro Studios is going to be handling development. Now, Metroid Prime 4 was announced with the big Switch, or was it E3? It was E3, the first mm-hmm. first year of the Switch, and it was just a JPEG of a logo. 
So we didn't know anything about and it. We really haven't seen anything since. And we didn't know who was developing it either. They've never officially said who was developing it. It's kind of been rumored it was a uh, secondary studio of Bandai Namco, which isn't really known for their first person exploration games. Um, so this is weird, but good. Because this means we're not going to get a subpar Metroid game. And it means that they actually care about the franchise. And especially after the kerfuffle that was Federation Force, um, they're putting a little more care into this. It's weird because this is a game that I think we all anticipated to come out this year. Yeah. And as their big game. And we don't know what their big game is. But this, this is not unusual for Nintendo to not have us go into a year and know what the big releases are. No. No, that's pretty normal. Um, we're due for Nintendo we, we Direct We know we're soon. getting a Fire Emblem this year. That's early. We're getting Fire Emblem, Yoshi. We're getting a, the, the Pokemon game, which, again, I think may slip as well. But it's also rumored uh, through some very good... Uh, you're going to hit what I was going to go. Go ahead. Which is, there's a lot of rumors that the reason that they're available to do Metroid Prime 4 and weren't previously is that the studio has been redoing the Metroid Prime trilogy and it's done and it's just sitting on a shelf waiting for an announcement and release. That's not, I didn't hear that rumor. That's oh, you didn't hear that's, that. That's, I, I, I just, I undercut Jared on Nintendo rumors. Yeah, that's great. No, that wasn't the rumor. The rumor I heard, um, and this is through, uh, Emily Rogers, who's, kind of well-known in the Nintendo rumors and news because she worked at Nintendo formerly. And, mm-hmm. But they have a war chest of games that they're sitting on right now. So and this that, fits into it, that. It fits into that. And I think 2019 is going to be a... It's going to be a... I'm hoping... I, I hope. We don't know. That's going to be a sort of a 27 sort of cycle for the Switch where it's big game every month. Or at least biggish game every month. Hmm. So... That would be hard on your paycheck. Yes, it will. Um... So, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, Retro has a really good track record. Oh, no. This is great news because it not being developed by Retro Studios was already kind of weird. Yeah. Um, because they, again, Retro came in. The thing that made Retro was Metroid Prime to take this sort of 2D series and translate it to 3D. And it took one generation of 3D that Metroid was bypassed, which was the Nintendo 64. You know, Mario came to 3D with Mario 64. Zelda came with Ocarina of Time. We saw the the major franchises kind of make their transition to 3D. Oh, but as we've discussed about before, when we talked about the Metroid franchise in Nintendo, they didn't really always know what to do with it. No, they didn't. It was kind of a secondary, you know, franchise for them. And we saw that with their kind of outsourcing of... Other M, which we shouldn't ever talk about again. And they did with Samus Returns as and, well. Well, but that was a remaster. Other M was a completely new game. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. So that's with trusting somebody to make a new game without a whole lot of oversight, and we didn't get a great result. So maybe they learned from Other M, and that's why they said, look, this isn't what we want. People aren't going to like this. Let's just stop it now. Tell everybody, so we set expectations, that it's going to take some more time, and we'll give it to back to Retro, and Retro realize the vision. So this is interesting, because we know Retro's been working on something which hasn't been announced yet. So are we going to see that this year coming out? Um, the rumor, 
and I don't know if we addressed this in a previous episode, was Retro was working on a... And this was substantiated by a lot of press, Eurogamo, Eurogamer, mm-hmm. and a couple other people that... Pretty good track record as news sources. That they were working on a Star Fox racing game called Star Fox Grand Prix that was going to be similar to or in the vein of Diddy Kong Racing where it was sort of story-based racing and but it would still have combat mechanics. Now, I see Sean Sean's face right now is like what the f is this? Um No, I would expect them to be doing like a relaunch of F-Zero. That's an established racing franchise we haven't gotten a game from on a main platform in Right, a if they're going to do a racing game, why not F-Zero? That was the first question, right? Why yeah. Star Fox? But you know, we've seen the Star Fox sort of genre kind of not be handled the same in the it, same vein. Again, right? we've they seen, outsourced it. It didn't really work. Nobody, it's not clicked since Star Fox 64. Nothing's clicked. Star and we Fox, know Star Fox Adventures wasn't a Star Fox game. Right. It was a Zelda game. <laughs> so interesting news in the world of Nintendo franchises. Um, we'll see where everything goes. But let's go into our main topic, Sean. Okay, for those who don't recognize that music, that's actually an excerpt of the main theme from Age of Mythology. Which, again, we talked about how we'd come to this as a conversation point, but across episodes, we've kind of touched on an investigation in certain genres in gaming. And we've talked about how genre as a concept itself is kind of flawed, but for this episode, we thought we'd talk a little bit about the genre, and it's a meta-genre of historical games, right? So these are games that either focus on a specific event that happened in history or an event that could have happened in history. Um, And sometimes it's dramatic and sometimes it's a simulation and sometimes it's just a background staging. So your Call of Duties, your Battlefields, the old school World War II settings as a backdrop. Yeah, and I want to talk about World War II specifically in a minute. Okay. But let's start with the whole concept. And when you look again, we're not looking at like this is a war game or this is, you know, a, a shooter or these are, this is kind of a meta genre when you look at the types of games. And I think there are a lot of people out there who have an interest in this because historical games allow us to not just experience a game, but potentially learn something about the past. And, and what got me on this topic, what, what made me think this was maybe the time for us to have this conversation, was actually my recent playtime with Assassin's Creed um, Odyssey, mm-hmm. which I don't think you've had a chance to play, right? Did you? I've, pl- I've kind of signed off on the Assassin's Creed franchise. So I'd almost tell you, and I don't want this to become a review of the game, but I'd almost tell you that maybe you shouldn't, because the last two Assassin's Creed games which Assassin's Creed's always been mired in history, right? Yeah, and they've done a fairly good job at it. I mean, that was one of the selling points. I think they did a good job of kind of interweaving their stories and kind of into the past. I th- that was what they did well. Um, well, and as somebody who thought at one point in his life he was going to become a history teacher, right? I love reading about historical situations, and I love 
historical fantasy to some extent, even more than I like real history, which again is apocryphal if you're actually a historian, but it, it excites me to see reality placed in these games and granted like movies, you know, Braveheart is not a historical accurate movie, but it presents a period of time and a story and an events that we don't have the benefit of having experienced. Right. And when we look at historical games, I, I like to think they usually break down into two different kind of groups. There's the simulation focused historical game where they're actually trying to replicate what the world or what the event or who the people were when that happened. And then there's kind of the setting focused games, which like the Assassin's Creed's are settings focused. They, they leverage a historical setting to tell a story. And the reason I was really, and again, I've only spent about four hours with Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And I did it as part of the Project Stream beta for Google. It felt great to be able to just kind of wander around in ancient Greece. And Assassin's Creed's not big on mythology and, and mysticism as much as it is on reality to some extent. And Granted, jumping off the top of a high building into a straw pile is not, <laughs> it's not real. And the animus thing and the future tense and... Anyway, we, we can yeah. dissect Assassin's yes. Creed all day. Uh, but you play as a main character who feels like they live there, right? And this is the story of the first assassin in the Assassin's Creed universe. And whereas Origins, I, which I didn't... Did you play Origins? Nope. Okay. Last one I played was Black Flag. Oh, I love Black Flag so much. For some of the same reasons, right? You get the trappings of a setting... And they can tell a dynamic story that you can't necessarily... You can't tell a pirate story in 2016, right? What kind of piracy is that? Well, it's going to be a bunch of Somalians kidnapping guys off a boat off the corner of Somalia. And the U.S. military is going to roll in and blow up the boat. It's really not that much fun. Um, Yarg! <laughs> you know, but... Uh, so, when we think about historical games, I mean, they really provide us this lens on a period of time. And the one thing I think that a lot of people are challenged by is to tell a historical story accurately often means you can't sell it in the modern world. If we actually portrayed the heroes of Greece and the living conditions of ancient Egypt before or, plumbing was invented or the middle ages accurately, there wouldn't be a lot of fun in those games. And if you want to play as a female character, well, your life would be especially not fun. Or if you want to play as a slave. Oh, it's Slave Simulator 2019. Yeah. No. Um, so we have to remember when we look at historical games that they're really allowing us to take some familiar elements of time and bring them into a modern story. And we have to recognize that culture has, uh, however, hopefully... Yeah, I was going to say, however marginally evolved, we've changed. I don't know that we're not bigger or better. It's just different. Eh, I think some things are better. I would say overall we're We have better. plumbing. Yes. We also have mega corporations running the world. Indeed. So there's good and bad. Um, and, and that also brings me to the concept of kind of the alternate futures, which are historical games. You'd be looking at me going, why would you say that's a historical game? Can you want to guess? 
what usually leads to an alternative future game something in the past not happening or, or being different. differently yeah yeah so we saw that with uh wolfenstein 2 exactly well right. wolfenstein 2 is one of those most underrated games yep and it's a political game too which is it is which is potentially explosive right now right um at least in america and especially in germany but yeah so the, go ahead yeah i mean we we've seen the the alternate future sort of I think it's also sort of like a trope now um, with like Man in the High Castle which on Amazon. Amazon's and- done a great job expanding that story because it really was, well, it's been changed, right? Yeah, it's been right, updated. Right. But, um, you know, what if it's the, what if this were to happen? You know, what would change? We've seen uh, the, do you remember the old show Sliders? Oh yeah. I love remember Sliders. That played with that, that it was because they were going to alternate realities of Earth. So every ep- episode was sort of, what if they never discovered penicillin? What if men or women were the... Uh, the dominant dominant sex. Yeah. Or is um, it, it's not gender, it's sex, right? I get confused these days. Let's move on. Uh, so <laughs> one of the things you have in here is time tropes. And I this is the one that stuck out with me because this is the one I hate. The one you mentioned specifically is... You know, we see these alternate realities or alternate versions of history, and there are dirigibles everywhere. Wolfenstein's done it. Um, Command, and, Command Conquer. and Conquer's done it. Yeah. Um, no. No. Arcanum. Yeah. Well, it makes sense in Arcanum. No. They're dirigibles. They're are not, not in efficient form. No, they're not viable. No. Nobody wants to get on a balloon for eight hours <laughs> to go 40 miles. There's a reason we have planes. They're far more efficient. So, no, uh, back to, you know, settings and, and this is a weird thing where I have history. I like, I'm, I'm, as I get older, I'm starting to understand and appreciate history more than Mm -hmm. when I was younger. Because you've experienced it. Yeah, that too. But I mean, I, you know, kind of learning about getting into more depth because we we're taught history in, you know. And I took, I took, yeah, we're taught it in the funnel and I did take some history courses in college that were a lot more interesting than they were in high school. Um, there's a lot of nuance to history, but they don't teach you. Um, yeah. And, and when you talk about, and you've turned me onto another podcast called hardcore history. Oh, I love that podcast. Um, and it's, it's just really, really interesting. And when you see it kind of, it changes your view a little bit. And something that's always bothered me personally, this is my opinion, is when I see a Call of Duty game or a Battlefield game, and it's a game set in World War II, which I'm going to be honest with you, wasn't a great time for our planet. Um, well, it's better than World War One, <laughs> But yes, but point taken. Sort of kind of taking revelation and got to get a headshot it's just like one of those teams where i i can't disconnect myself from that history as much and and the glorification of war especially so here's here's an interesting thing i've got a story to tell you from and i think i may have told this story before when i was at the dispatch and i was reviewing a number of video games around veterans day and i pitched this to my editor and so, Chuck, if you ever listen to the podcast, and you know, and he used my former podcast podcast partner on Game On, but I pitched the concept of doing, you know, veterans reflect on video games, 
And there was an immediately visceral negative reaction to that concept. And I'm like, I'm a veteran. I, I don't, it's a game, right? Yeah. And, and if anything, I could use this conversation to help educate people who don't have veterans in their lives, who can talk about how video games are not reality and the things that people experience in war are nothing like this to, yeah. to kind of counteract exactly what you're talking right. about. Oh, wow. They exploded on me. They're like, you will absolutely not reach out to any of these veterans. That is disrespectful to ask them to comment on this. You should respect the sacrifice and what they went through. And you, above all, everybody else should understand this, Sean. And I'm like, but I'm trying to teach a generation who has no concept. And this was in the you know, early 2000s. So we had a war going on. That's just so, I mean, okay, take the video context out of it. Mm-hmm. Just let's just generalize it to media and overall. Yeah, it's a side of the story that we don't hear enough of. I mean, we turned on. When was this, Sean? Um, not this past year, but maybe a year ago. You were over. Maybe it was the early New Year's Day, and you and I were watching uh, the story of Iwo Jima and oh, the, yeah. the Pacific Battle Pacific. Theater. Yep, and flags of our fathers. And we're sitting there, and we probably look like two people but it was interesting and it's it's just that kind of stuff that we don't see in in the video game genre as much now to counteract that now I'll, I'll let you talk in a second assassin's creed did pull a lot of context into its plot and characters mm-hmm. um you know where you can read an article in assassin's creed and for the most part it's like reading wikipedia um right and I remember playing Assassin's Creed 2, which was set in Italy for the most part. And there's a, there's a uh, which city was it? I want to say it was Venice, maybe. And I, I, you know, you're playing in the city, you're jumping on the, it's procedurally generated, but they have landmarks in the city. And I wanted to go into Google Maps and just see how faithfully they've recreated it. Mm-hmm. And it was surprising. Um yeah, they shortened some of it, but oh yeah, there's there's liberties taken, but you know, like the courtyard where the tower is, I can't remember which city in Italy that is. Well, and the other reason I wanted to talk about this, and the reason I wanted to come back to World War Two and World War One, yeah, right. So we've still got veterans of World War Two alive, not very many of them at this point. Yes, we have a lot of veterans for the American Vietnam conflict, Korean War, and since the video and game golf. industry are largely focused on American conflicts, right? It wasn't until Battlefield 1, that we really got a World War One story. And I think it was a gimmick mechanic, which was when you die, you become somebody else on the battle. Pardon me, on the battlefield. And you start to play through their story. I thought that was a little bit of a gimmick mechanic. But if you think about it, what it was actually finally kind of showing a player who they didn't care, it's a run and gun shooter and you're just going to shoot the next guy. But is there was a price for every person that died. And I guess if you didn't have that outside perspective, you weren't really looking at it as an academic. You were just looking at it as, oh, I'm going to drink a beer and shoot people. Maybe it didn't resonate with you. But that's not the type of people we are, right? And that was exactly what I was going for with that veteran. Because I was writing my column, and, and I had done multiple Veterans Day. I did it for about seven years. And I had had a conversation with uh, one of the 
staff writers who was not a video game guy who was covering a crime beat and one of the games that had come out recently was tied to and then we may have even talked about this previously but there was a freeway shooter at that time oh yeah i remember that time. in columbus yep and everybody was investigating the freeway shooter they didn't know who he was or if it was one person or multiple people at the time and we're talking upwards of 20 30 shootings Yes. Oh, and then they found evidence that this person had, quote unquote, trained on video games. Now, as somebody who is a expert rifleman, I will tell you, you cannot train on a video game. At least not of Xbox, which is what he was using. Um, but the media didn't care about that aspect of it. So I got pulled in to talk with my peer who was on the crime and the investigative piece and I'm on the media and, you know, commercial stuff because I'm talking about video games. Nothing that does any, means anything, right? Right. And he's telling me how he's not a... And he was an older gentleman. Frank was his name. And we were walking through this game. And he said, can you set this up? I want to play this so I can write about what I experienced seeing this thing for the first time. Okay. And I pulled him aside and said, Frank, first off, I'm happy to do that. Right. I can, I would love for you to do this because I think this is going to prove to you that you're not going to have that reaction. And something I discovered, he had that reaction because he didn't play video games. He wasn't of the right age to have been kind of sanitized to well, the images and the experiences. And I mean, I know we're a little separate in age, but we're in that age where, you know, violence is, is, normal right well per depictions of violence depictions of violence i want to be very clear and yeah oh yeah let me let me <laughs> yeah yeah me and sean we're, we're fighting when we're off the scenes no no depictions of violence in media right right and, and we grew up with it we grew up with it we watched the action films of the 80s you know and in, in the 90s and as we all know in america violence a-okay Sex and language. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down. Well, the interesting thing was, so I, I sat in him in this room and I, I, I just kind of, I felt like that Conan segment, right? Mm -hmm. Where I'm the guy who knows what a game is and, and the writer was playing Conan without any humor. Um, and he played for a while and he said, okay, thanks. This is what I needed to know. And, you know, I went my separate ways because we're journalists, right? I'm not going to influence what he's going to write. Ultimately, his editor is going to be the one who has any influence on it. And I found him right as they were going to press the next day. And I said, so what did you use? How did you feel after that? How did it change your story? And he said, now I understand how you could play these games and go kill somebody. And, and I looked at him and I said, I think you may be looking at it through your eyes and not his eyes. And the story went out about how this was a murder simulator and it was you know, desensitized people to violence and could allow them to kill other human beings. And, and, and I'm, this was the through line in media for a long time. Yes. And I, I didn't understand it. I still don't because he was okay going to see the Godfather, which glor glamorizes to some extent mob violence, but a video game was something so interactive for him. Well, and I think that's it, right? I mean, that's that's the common thread in that that argument. And we didn't mean to make this an episode of video game. Well, I want to bring it back around in a second, but but I think it's that literal 
simulation of you're hitting a trigger and seeing somebody die, which I think that's that's a thing where people, you know, uh, it was like when Grand Theft Auto came out, right? It was mm-hmm. the, the fact that you could have a hooker come rock your car. Yeah. Um, Simulate and, a sex act. Yeah. And it's like, no, <laughs> I'm not getting that. I can have that separation as a human adult or kid. I mean, I, th- I always had that separation. I knew what I was on the screen and it's, it's game of gamified, gamified, um, gamificated, gamificated to a point where I can separate that. And it's weird to me that the people that can't separate that because that that's alarming to me. But what I'm going for here is conversely, we have an entire generation who can watch a game like battlefield one and not feel anything. Yeah, you're right. And and that's where I was going is I found myself actually at the opposite end when I played that game. Yeah. Because I'm like, hold on. George Stevenson just died in Ardennes. And I got him killed because I couldn't see through the smoke. And because for me, it was more involving than I would have normally felt. Anticipated, yeah. I could suddenly see that point of view. And and that's, I think, a power that games, especially historical, 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 I'm sorry, I'm stuck on the Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> uh, hysterical games, <laughs> um, no, historical games can really help us immerse ourselves in elements of the past. I think it's, I think it's definitely an untapped opportunity. And the, I think the problem is, is it's not. It's not going to be fun, right? There's, I heard this argument in a podcast, and I'll recommend this podcast in our missed opportunities later. But it was sort of talking about games. Are they required to be fun, right? I think it's the, the connotation of game says fun. But, I mean, we're, t- we're talking about the video games have evolved. We've played the walking simulators. We've played narrative-driven games character-based games well, depression quest depression quest we've it's evolved to a point where it's not you just see something fun. like you're saying where it's you're interacting with what war actually is it won't be fun and that's the point and i think that's something you know kudos to somebody if they're already working on something like that or if that's that thoughts cross their head because that's something i want to see except um, games have to be commercially viable in most cases. You're right. Big games. You're right. So, and we could say when we go back and look at other forms of media, when we see... see I mean, when I revisit the Battle of Hoth in Battlefront 1, I don't feel that connection like I'm a rebel soldier. Or- yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's why I can play those types of battle games, you know, a little easier than trying to do something and even grand theft auto. Right. I mean, yeah, it's an urban city and it's supposed yeah, to be but they go out of their way. It's so unrealistic. Well, um, they go out of their way to make elements of parody obvious. Right. Right. I think actually you're more in danger with red dead redemption. Yeah. No be- red, De- but that's a part of the game, right? It, red dead never emphasizes that the visceral sort of, blood and and setting of the wild west and and it's rough and that's the point Mm -hmm. um you know the the characters that you meet in that game are pretty much they're they're people living in that world 
there's also an element of the Sergio Leone kind of stereotypes from the spaghetti westerns. Yeah, and which is purposeful. Yeah, uh, but with Red Dead Two, and I know you haven't played much of it, if any, um, the story is is much more realistic, I think, in some ways than Red Dead One or Red Dead Revolver was, and it's this neat evolution. And I, I kind of felt the same way at Grand Theft Auto Five's story. I mean, again, it's ridiculous. It's completely satirical and cynical. And- but there's elements that are that are far more realistic than I would have expected. And this kind of brings me to the final point I want to talk about. When we play a game, does the time frame of the game really matter? Or is it just set dressing? And I think there's certain games where it absolutely is important. Uh, but Bioshock. Bioshock is a game that actually takes place in the 70s. I don't know if everybody knows that. Yeah, ocean in the 70s, but yeah. Well, no, if you look yeah, at the plane, no, no, yeah. you, I mean, it's 1970s. Did the 1970s setting have anything to do with the effectiveness of the storytelling? Because where he goes from the 70s is effectively the 50s, right? Because Raptures is kind of stuck in this 50s mindset. Bioshock Infinite. It's a game set in the... 1920s, 1910s. Yeah, early 1900s, and it has an 1870s, 1880s vibe to it with a steampunk flair. But they're both games about modern problems. Right. But I think, okay, to that point, I would say it's a way of conveying that. I mean, it's it's the same thing that TV shows have been... It's like with Star Trek, absolutely is the parallel I draw here, right? Mm-hmm. It's set in the 23rd century when humans have not used figured, money anymore, figured stuff out where economy is no longer still a thing. tells what? parallels to, you know, social commentary mm-hmm. because it's easier to do that. And it's easier to digest that when you're separating the period, if it's in, if it's in real now and we see parodies and we see stuff about our current dilemmas, we're going to be like, I see enough of this in the news every day. Yeah. But when you see it in a story where you can kind of capture those common things, especially like with, I think it's a, it's an effective storytelling measure because you can kind of distance yourself. I know I'm doing a little sci-fi, but even with the historical is you can kind of see classism and well, and some of them talked about how it was a great lens to show the sixties of racism and sexism. And, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of like, it really wasn't all that subtle, guys. Yeah. I mean, we think it was wonderful and groundbreaking because it was. They didn't show it on TV. But compared to our modern storytelling approaches, it's it's yeah. It's written large all over the story. Right. So anyway, I wanted to kind of broach this topic because there's for me, I've got some personal experiences with it. Obviously, I have a love for history. And in some of the seedier parts of history as well. And I thought this would be a good conversation. It turned out to be a little bit more of an emotional one than I thought I was expecting with Jared and I. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts specifically on why would you play or not play a historical game? Is it something that even plays into the decision making that you make when you look at something? Or is it that you're looking for a specific setting or a specific gameplay? What, what makes you decide? If a game is good or not for you. Yeah. And does, you know, I know some people that see a historical setting. They're like, oh, that's off putting to them. Yeah. Especially we've seen a lot of uh, 
stuff of the eighties, you know, the uh, romanticizing the eighties and eighties isn't the, 90s. the history though, huh? No, well, I I'm know, still but, in the eighties. I know, but you know, you might. <laughs> I grew up in the eighties, so yeah. Like Sean said, we want to hear what you have to say, and we're giving you a new opportunity and a new mechanism to do that. Yes, we are. With our section fans giving of the back feeds, we, at your behest, I p- posited on our Facebook. If more than one person wants a voicemail box, I will go through the effort of creating one. And we have one now. So you can leave us a voicemail at 267-TANGENT. Or if you don't want to correlate letters to numbers on your dial pad, which I don't even know if anybody knows what a dial pad is with touch phones. It's still on your phone. Yeah, but does anybody literally call it a dial pad? No. Um, It's also 267 826 Four three six eight, and those last four numbers are the same numbers of my childhood phone number. <laughs> ironically, um, ironically. So leave us a voicemail. We're we're happy to hear from you. One thing I would point out with the voicemail is make your points quick and concise about one topic of the show. We're not looking for a review of the entire episode because we can't air that. We can't air a five minute voicemail. So. You know, pick something out and you can leave multiple voicemails. That's fine. If you want to leave a voicemail about what Sean said that aggravated you, sure. If you want to leave a voicemail about what Jared is using for his network equipment, sure. That's my recommendation to you, the audience, uh, because we don't want to have to go through the effort of editing a yeah. lot. We're, it's not that we're lazy. It allows us to turn out these podcasts with the speed with which you've come to expect. Correct. So that being said... Superfan Kyle did leave a voicemail for us. And Sean, I don't know if you can hit some of his highlights. Well, yes, I can. Thanks to Google Translate, which, oh my gosh. Um, something about John Legend's blood boiling. <laughs> I, uh, so yeah, we're, we're utilizing Google Voice and it's using its transcription service, which has... We might have to air a separate podcast episode with just oh, that's, those transcriptions. That's probably yeah, bad <laughs> translation episodes. So Kyle went through a number of different things. One of the questions he asked, and Jared, you can answer this because you just brought it up. He wanted to know, because we mentioned that you upgraded your network gear, what network gear did you buy? So this is an unpaid endorsement, so be, be aware of that. Yeah, I, and, and, and I had been researching. Kyle's right. I was working on an uh, Apple uh, time capsule. Uh, it was fairly AC, old. wireless AC. Yep. However... We're in an age where we have a lot more devices utilizing wireless connections than we ever did before, specifically in my home where I have a lot of home automation tools like light switches and light bulbs. So one of the requirements I was looking for this was, does it have multiple radios Mm -hmm. to do wireless? Another thing is, um, as Sean's pointed out when he was over here, we, we did run a cable down to my basement to get a wired connection uh, is to do online gaming and streaming, you kind of need something a little s- steady. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that being said, I picked out a Netgear, I can't remember the model number, Nighthawk router that roughly cost about $260. I think that's the 26 or 3900 Yeah. Um, the features that I bought it for, and what this is a weird thing in, in tech corner of our podcast, is there's a lot of features that I feel like should be enabled by default for non-technical users. Um, But one of the cool features this offers is 
uh, QoS or quality of service. Basically, it says Sean and Jared are on the same network right now. Sean is playing Diablo Online on a Switch and using the Magic of the Cloud database. I know he's gaming right now. So I'm going to make sure that Sean's traffic is prioritized over Jared reading Nintendo Wikipedia. Wow, it's almost like a real example. (laughs) Um, Another feature it has is it has multiple radios, right? You have multiple devices. Ultimately, they're going to one antenna, one radio. And so in layman's terms, you're getting a lot of interference with a lot of connections, especially if people in your neighborhood have other wireless devices. So by having multiple radios, you can kind of split up that traffic um, and make sure it works. So overall, if hopefully that answers your question, Kyle, I would say um, if you do do online gaming, you've probably researched this, especially if you're a hardcore PC gamer, you're probably wired already. If you're like me, most of my network is wireless. Um, I don't do a lot of wired connections in my house. So if you have a lot of devices and you've kind of said, hey, my internet's slow, but I'm paying $100 for 200 megabit internet and it's still not working right, you might want to look at getting a a more modern device. Uh, You know, it's a little more expensive. And do your research. Um, You can read reviews online. Okay. Is that enough? No, that's good. (laughs) thorough answer. And so I'll share the last thing that he put in. There were a number of really good comments, Kyle. Thank you for leaving the voicemail. Uh, He mentioned that Skyrim was a game that he got. He played for two hours. It didn't grab him, and he never played it again. Kyle may be our number one super fan, and maybe even mine, but I'm now disappointed. Knowing what I know of Kyle, he doesn't really like single-player experiences, so that does not surprise me. Well, then he should play the game we're going to talk about in our one dumb thing. Yeah, he should. (laughs) Okay. Uh, That's fans giving of the backfeeds. We want to hear from you. And Jen, if you're listening, we need your comments. She's already said that if she, she, you should replace me. I know. I'm waiting to hear what that, how that (laughs) manifests. So we're on the missed opportunities. We only have one for you this week. Um, Not that it's in my best interest to promote other podcasts than this one. I don't want to. You know, listen to us first, but if you have the time, listen to somebody else's. Here's some professional and far more interesting <laughs> people with better connections in Hollywood that we that would make a podcast. Yeah. So uh, Adam Conover, which you may know from the show, Adam Ruins Everything. Which is a character he plays. Let's yeah, be very he, clear. Yeah. Uh, he started a new podcast called Humans That Make Video Games. And what he's doing is, again, something we haven't seen a lot of in the video game business is actually talking to the creators and developers themselves, not Mm -hmm. the publishers, not the media sort of develop the developers of the games. Um, And his first guest was Edmund McMillan, which you may know from the binding of Isaac or super meat boy or Gish or the end is nigh. He's like the God of Indies. He's he's definitely an indie. He's indie. Um, And it, it's just an in-depth sort of, podcast of just sort of the genesis of what that looked like as an indie developer. Um, Some interesting tidbits that he brought out was just sort of, you know, to make ends meet as an indie developer, he had to sell his video game collection, which made me kind of cry on the inside to fuel his passion. Um, So I recommend it. It's really good. Yeah. Um, Interview based, sort of like a discussion like we're talking now. And I think the second person on his second episode is, um, uh, the guy that did Splunky, uh, Derek, I can't remember his last name. 
um, but another indie developer. So this is a good podcast. The first episode was great. Totally recommend it. So missed opportunity. So I, I'm here to disappoint everybody this week. I learned nothing. I missed nothing and I discovered nothing. Okay. Sean, you've brought up this week's oh, one dumb thing. Yes, is definitely. Okay, so in the continuing saga of Bethesda's masterpiece online single-player survival game, Fallout 76, there was a listing for a Fallout 76-branded leather jacket on the Bethesda store. Now, Bethesda's been known for years for making good... Okay, let me not say you're good, because I'm going to get preconceived for that one. For making tie-in products that have an interest to fans of their games. The the most famous example is the Pip-Boy from Fallout and putting a smartphone in it. And Hey, I've got a Pip-Boy now. Which everybody did for like 10 minutes and realized it wasn't really workable to try and play a game and use your arm at the same time. Yeah. Uh, but it looks great on the My Display stand. Yes. Um, and uh, so... Of course, this was an opportunity for the crowd to attack. Now, I'm just going to do a friendly statement, and this is not as somebody who has a vested interest in the success or failure of Fallout 76, but, all right, this is getting old. They're not wrong, but it's getting old. So what they did is they took the picture for the Fallout 76 leather jacket, and somebody photoshopped it, to look like a hand-stitched Ikea uh, shopping bag and a plastic raincoat with the letter 76 on the back. Now, all of this is referring to the um, debacle around the collector's edition, the $300 collector's edition, coming with a leather bag that actually came with a cheap plastic bag. Canvas. Yeah, it was canvas. Um, I tr- I've never realized that people have cared about canvas. Oh, you didn't even. Now. Well, we talked about the rum thing. I think that was another one of our one dumb things. Yeah. So <clears throat> the the story is ongoing. People are really hating for the sake of hating. I think at this point. Yeah. Um. But let let me throw some hate on the fire. They also announced in the patch notes that survival mode is coming. To Fallout 76 in a future um, update. I'm confused by that statement. Isn't the game already sort of a survival-based game? Yes. So what does that mean? Yes. So my only my only comment on this, outside of the uh, the patch note business, is that's that's something I've seen a lot of, and it's it's fun to make a meme out of stuff, and you know it's the horse armor debacle <laughs> i'm still making jokes about horse armor um i'm so mature but at the same time of just sort of getting on this bandwagon this katamari of of hate i mean i don't know how to bethesda they messed up most they messed up but they have mostly goodwill with their fans right yeah um it's a misstep right that's how i see it it's a misstep and i it was well aware i didn't pre-purchase the game I, I wanted did. to see how it was because of stuff like this. And I, for you people that pre-order games and expect the best, I, listen, um, there's a reason that you shouldn't pre-order games. And this is it. Says the guy who pre-orders almost every game he buys. Right. But that's a conscious decision. But I you're make. Ma- you're accepting the risk. And if it's a horrible game, so be it. Um, number nine. You know, 
I would say one and two switch if you want to go one and two switch sixty dollar bullshit. Um, you know, launch title, but you know, I I don't think they're des- deserving of this. Bethesda's been and yeah, there's some missteps, there's some miscommunication, and there's a they've handled this not so well. But the dumb thing here is people hating. Yeah, not Bethesda's poor choices. Right, and I, I just I hate to see it because. To me, even somebody that hasn't played... <laughs> Do you know the words you just used? What? I hate to see people hating. Oh. It's it's disappointing to see. Let me rephrase. It's, <laughs> I don't hate it. it it's disappointing. Um, well, anyway, I don't want to dwell on I, this. I think I hate to see means it's disappointing. Right? I, I get it. I'm but, just teasing you. No, I know. It's disappointing to see just people attacking. And again, Bethesda's not deserving it. Direct that towards EA, okay? And then I'll be okay with you. They're easy, though. They're... It's an easy time. Hey, Anthem's coming out. Yay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, lastly on our list is our one gratifying thing. Sean, this is yours. It is. So, I am very happy in to have in my life a number of video games that I've purchased with no time to play because when I finally have time to play and there's no games coming out, I have games that I want to play. So you're saying it's worth it. Yep. (laughs) All right. That's everything for this week's episode. As always, we appreciate you listening. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Discord, and especially our Discord where it's been very active. It's been very active and there's been a lot of discussion and I will say hashtag we are all Connor. Bye. Bye.